Good morning and welcome to no. Uh, what's the name of the show, Carol? Again, Mad Village. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Mad Village on ninety-eight point nine Northwest FM. Uh, you're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Jaime. And who do we have on the show today? We have a wonderful guest this morning. We've got. Dr. Karen Block from Melbourne Uni. Karen is a research fellow in the Jack Brockoff Child Health and Wellbeing Team in the Centre for Health Equity in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. And that's such a wonderfully long title. Welcome, Karen. Good to see you. Hi, Carol. All right. So um, that we, it seems that we're talking to quite a few academics in the last couple of weeks. And I think another one coming soon. Um, Karen does a lot of hands-on work in the real world too. <laughs> That's good. So um, we're going to listen to the first music track and then we'll come back for the interview. Tune to Music with Milton. Mondays at 12 noon for a mixture of rock, pop and soul from the 1960s onwards. The show includes lost classics, music trivia and some obscure tracks. Music with Milton, Mondays at 12 noon on 98.9 Northwest FM. Tune in to 98.9 Northwest FM, Thursdays. I love Thursdays because that's my day program and that's World of Music program from 12 to 2 with Carmelina. I think we make a good team, Carmelina. 12 to 2. Thursdays. Only on 98.9 Northwest FM. That's the name of the station, Northwest FM, and the show you're listening to is Mad Village. Uh, it is now, what, 9... Seven minutes past nine, and this morning we're talking to Dr. Karen Block. Carol, So welcome go. again, Karen. Karen's going to talk to us this morning about research work she's involved in through Melbourne Uni, um, focusing on social inclusion, uh, working with families of refugee and migrant children and with community sports organisations um, to see how community sport can help with social inclusion for recently arrived people. So Karen, tell us a bit about your project, how it started, and... Um, What's happening with it so far? Okay, sure. Um, thanks, Carol. It's So the project's called Count Me In and it's um, all about, as you said, um, encouraging and supporting children and young people from migrant and refugee families to get involved in community-based sport in, in mainstream clubs. And it's focused in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Sure, yeah. It's, we're working in Moreland and Hume. Um, yeah, so there's plenty of people from migrant and refugee backgrounds obviously there and I guess going back to how this start, how this started, uh, oh, about eight years ago now, I was um, when I was doing my PhD, which was looking at social inclusion for refugee background young people. Um, sport kept coming up as something that young people wanted to do. I was, you know, pe- so young people newly arrived to Australia would say, "I really want to play sport, but it's so hard." You know, they they there are lots of barriers, and we know what those barriers are. They're around costs. They're around transport. They're around um, Families not really supporting um, young people to play sport. Often families who've recently arrived are more focused on education which, and all the other things that are going on for them when they're, when they're new to the country. Uh, so they often don't see sport as a priority, which is understandable. Um, and also sports clubs aren't necessarily welcoming um, or, or providing a culturally appropriate environment as well. So following following 
that coming up all the time. I did a, a sort of an exploratory project initially looking at the different things that were going on in the community where people were including young people from migrant and refugee backgrounds in sport. And it was clear there was sort of, I saw three different models. There was short-term programs, like after-school programs that would go for about six weeks. And people were saying they were great. Kids had lots of fun, but they never went anywhere. They, you know, that was the end of it. Um, there were also some, some instances uh, where there were sort of ongoing programs specifically for young people from refugee backgrounds. Um, but I guess because my interest is in social inclusion, I was really interested in, well, that, that's fine. That's great. It's really good that those things are happening. But we need to provide opportunities for people to actually be involved in, in mainstream clubs as well. They shouldn't yeah. have to be in separate programs only. Yeah, it's really hiving people off into little yeah. communities, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and as a stepping stone, I, I think that can be great. But it's, you know, I think we we have all these community clubs. We The community provides a lot of resources for them. They should be catering for the whole community apart from anything else. And then in the few instances where it was working really well, um, where we did see clubs including young people from refugee backgrounds and migrant backgrounds, um, it, there was invariably, it was because there was a person. <laughs> and I know you've done some work, Carol, at the Brunswick Zebras, um, being that person. And it's a lot of work and often it's a volunteer. And then there were a couple, but there were a couple of clubs that were actually employing um, bilingual uh, community people. So m- people who are migrants themselves, um, who sort of represented the dominant ethnic group in that area. And they were employing them on a part or casual basis to be that to be that linking person. The There's person. community clubs that are actually paying people. Yeah. How did they manage yeah. that? So usually through grants. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, oh, well, I can name them. The West Sunshine Cricket Club um, was actually really successful at getting a lot of Sudanese young people playing cricket, which is amazing, um, given that it's it's certainly not not a sport that Sudanese people arrive knowing anything about or having a particular interest in. But there, there was, again, there was one person at the club who was really driving that and he, he managed to get a grant to employ um, some of the dads actually from the community to be, that, to be that linking person that brought the young people into the club. And the other club that does it really well is Collingwood Basketball Club and there actually the local council, um, Yarra Council, has taken over paying a community support worker who actually, again, does that linking role. Um, and then in other instances, like like the work that you did at Zebras, it's it's a volunteer, but it's a big job, and it's it's too much really, I think, for a volunteer to keep doing, and difficult to sustain. Difficult to sustain, absolutely. So, Karen, how many how many different sports did you look at? So in that project, I looked at about oh, we looked at probably about six or seven different sports, um, and it was it was rare, but always there was this one person. Um, because I was just going to say that obviously there are some sports who traditionally uh, it was it was mostly migrant communities that would play. Sure. And well, I'm soccer. thinking about soccer, yeah. you know, in the early days. I mean, now it's very yeah. different, isn't it? So soccer is still, a lot of migrants um, play soccer. There's no doubt about it. But soccer, it's still not very inclusive when it comes to people who are recently arrived mm. or people who don't have much money. Soccer is really expensive mm. um, to play, which I think is, is, that's another problem that needs needs dealing with. Um, so yes, there it, there's a lot of ethnic diversity, but it's still not really including those people who, who've just come here. I also know that quite a few soccer clubs, uh, you might have someone, you know, you might have a club, but it's mostly, I don't know, people from Chile and the other mm-hmm. one is mostly people from Greek. And perhaps that's not exactly what you want in terms exactly. of social inclusion. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You want everybody. Well, I think you want everybody in together. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, those those clubs have played a great role. Yeah. Um, 
in, I guess, creating inclusion over the longer term um, by giving people a place to be and a safe place. But I think, yeah, I guess the model that I'm interested in promoting is really where every, you know, it's where you're bringing people from all sorts of different backgrounds together. Um, so this is the genesis of the So that was the project. genesis yep. of it. Um, and then I managed to get a small grant um, to actually uh, start an inter- uh, you know, to start a project where I thought, well, rather than just single clubs employing someone, um, how can we create a model where you can have that community support worker who actually supports people to join a, a number of different clubs? Um, because I, I guess thinking forward, you know, how can we make this a sustainable model? It's never going to be economic for every single club to employ someone just to to bring people into their club. And also, obviously, people like, you know, there's a lot of different sports that people want to play. Obviously, there would be quite a lot of reasons why particularly some of the big clubs would want something like this to happen. I mean, it's just a matter of uh, harnessing the talent of all the different people who are coming in, no? Exactly, yeah. And, and we sta- that was what we started doing was actually working with clubs that um, had declining junior numbers, often because they were perhaps in a, an ethnically diverse area, but they weren't tapping into, into, those, into those communities. They're, um, they're being predominantly attractive to, I guess, people from an Anglo background, for want of a better word, um, and that was no longer reflecting the community that they're actually situated in. Well, that's right, and there's nothing that prevents, I don't know, Spanish people from enjoying cricket, and I can tell you that f- from first-hand experience, I think I am the best Spanish cricketer alive, <laughs> and that's all because of my son. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the reason why I'm saying this is because there are not many people who play pr- yes. cricket in Spain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, the, the point is that, obviously, if you, if you promote a particular sport, I mean, kids are going to enjoy going after the ball anyway. It doesn't matter what you do. No? Absolutely. And like, like West Sunshine with their, their Sudanese cr- um, cricketers there, you know. And, and you work with other sports that are more traditionally Anglo-based, like netball, netball Aussie rules. Aussie rules, cricket, um, also, also soccer, obviously, tennis. Um, yeah, a number. Um, so I guess getting back to like, how we then got going, our initial partnership was with Mary Health in Moreland and with Moreland City Council. Um, and we um, we employed somebody who was actually actually we employed two people one um, who's Arabic speaking and one Urdu speaking. Um, in the early days of the project, uh, the Arabic speaking um, employee didn't continue, but the Urdu speaker uh, that we've got her name is Sawat. She's amazing. She's a super recruiter. She had <laughs> she's she put out a message. She, she had this Viber group with over two hundred um, families, and she put out. A message and she got I think within 24 hours 80 families saying yes we're interested in kids <laughs> playing sport so the the will the interest is out there um and what was really interesting I guess was that all those families were quite keen for their kids to play sport they didn't know how to go about it um it was they really needed someone they needed that person to say okay well here's some clubs that uh, that want want your kids um I'll be there on day one to help you do the registration the club's were also helping out with offering us some discounts at that point. And, um, yeah, we signed up quite a large number of kids in the first six months. I think we had over about 180 kids um, sign up for various different clubs, which is amazing. How long ago was this? So that was about, oh, gosh, it was about a year ago, not just over a year ago. Um, so then, then we got a bigger grant, which was great, from Vic Health, and we expanded into Hume as well, and we employed a second 
um, community support coordinator, we call them, and she's Arabic speaking. And so now we're working really hard in Hume as well to to try and um, recruit more families. And, and there it's a kind of different population. So in Moreland, we've worked a lot around Faulkner, Hadfield, Glenroy, a lot of um, mostly immigrant families. And we've got it because our our super recruiter is an Urdu speaker. We've got a lot of Pakistani families who signed up. But now we're getting more, um, some recently arrived Iraqi and Syrian families as well. Karen, I was going to ask you, we, we have a bit of experience at work uh, with community sport because that's one of the things that we do to mm-hmm. attract kids. And generally there, there was always a bit of a myth, uh, you know, in the community sector that particularly Muslim families would not make it very easy for their daughters to play. Mm. And our experience has always been the opposite. You know, like you put the opportunity out there and it's not much of an issue, provided that you provide the the initial conditions, you know, and certainly, for example, for swimming, um, whenever we have gone swimming with, with Muslim families, I think it's about allowing the kids to wear whatever they want to wear. Mm. Um, but once you make those steps to make it easy, I think all families understand that... Uh, you know, sport is cool, good for girls as well. What what has been your experience? Yeah, we've we've had um, about a third of the kids who signed up um, initially have been girls, which isn't bad. That's that's kind of um, not. It's a, it's a bit of a lower ratio than in the broader community, um, but we do have a lot of the the Muslim girls are, are playing, and their parents are keen. Um, there's been. We did some focus groups with with mums, and they, some of them said that their husbands initially weren't so keen on their daughters playing sport, but that the mums had brought them around. Actually, one of the interesting things that happened um, quite early on was some of the mothers, um, the quite conservatively religious mums, said we would like to do some sport as well. And so we went into entered into a partnership with Badminton Victoria, and they've been we've been running sessions, women's only badminton sessions. Um, with, a fe- with female coaches and we've got about 40, 40 women are now playing badminton as well, which is great. And we've just in the process of um, encouraging some of them to, to train as coaches. Um, badminton Victoria is going to provide the coach training and, and we've got about six who are interested in doing that too, which is really exciting. And I was wondering as well if um, it would be a benefit to have some discussions with parents about the benefits of sport, even for those mm-hmm. academic goals that they want to reach. Yeah. Is that something that you have explored? Absolutely, yeah. We definitely um, sort of put out a lot of information about the benefits of sport because well, there's increasing evidence that kids who play sport actually do better academically. And that's one of the myths you've got to break down because a lot of parents say, oh, no, we want our kids studying, we don't want them playing sport. But, it's like, you know, so we try we're all the time telling people that actually it will help them academically and socially. And we've been, and it's been interesting. You know, the, as I said, we did focus groups with the parents and with the kids, and also interviews with people from the sports clubs. Um, and I guess what we're hearing back is, is all the things that we had hoped: is that the um, kids are making new friends, they're having a lot of fun, the parents are making new friends. Um, a lot of these women, in particular, are quite socially isolated, and they're finding it a really great um, opportunity to come. You know, when they take their kids to sport, they sit and talk to other parents, and and that's how. And and that's what we were always hoping that it would be um, something that promoted social social engagement and social inclusion for parents as well. Um, and how did you select the sports clubs to be involved with? Uh, I guess it's in several different ways. Initially, we um, our first sports club partner was Hadfield Sports Club, which has netball, cricket, and 
um, AFL and they had had declining junior numbers so they're really keen to be involved um, and then after that it was really a, a matter of sort of uh, asking people what sports they were interested in and we're only really focused on promoting team sports um, simply because we have limited resources and you can't do everything and also because it fits with our thinking around social inclusion it's it's kind of more social um, so then I guess we've just added other clubs uh, on a needs basis so we there uh, Faulkner Hague Faulkner Cricket Club um, we'd we knew they were already doing a good job of uh, being sort of promoting diversity and um, being a really inclusive club. So we've been working with them. We sent a lot of kids there. Um, and then there's the Northern Saints uh, Football Club is also in Faulkner. We started working with them. But who else are we working with? So we've got our – oh, Hume, uh, there's a basketball in Hume. Um, they're Bro- doing some – Broadmeadows really, Basketball. Broadmeadows Basketball. Yeah, yeah, we've sent a lot of kids there recently. And now we're starting to do a lot of work in Craigieburn because a lot of our families are um, – that's a really big settlement area. Yep. And uh, so we're doing working with little athletics, cricket, basketball in Craigieburn, and we've got a badminton session running up there as well. Mm. Sounds like you keep pretty busy, Karen. Yeah, we're pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes, <laughs> thinking, trying to keep um, keep on top of it all. And and then of course I'm a researcher, so this is. You know, I'm. <laughs> That's <laughs> that right. My my primary job is to actually, um, I, I guess what we're trying to do is is create the evidence base for you know what one what works, um, how can we make this work, and then um, also what are the benefits. So I've been looking. We've been doing surveys with the kids um, when they start, and then just just for the pilot initially, we we did follow up surveys six months later, and soon we'll be going out to do more surveys. But with about a hundred. Just over 100 kids we managed to do baseline and follow-up surveys. We looked at um, uh, levels of resilience, well-being and also social networks, social connectedness. And really pleasingly we found um, actually that their resilience measure has shown an improvement over the time from when they started to six months later, um, which is fantastic. How do you measure that? Uh, there's a, Well, we use a scale called the Child and Youth Resilience Measure. Um, which just asks a lot of questions about – it tries to get at, um, I guess, kids' own personal resources but also the resources that they have in their relationships um, which promote resilience. And it's a pretty hard thing to shift resilience, you know, so we're pretty thrilled that we're seeing that. Yeah. Um, and then we, with our social networks, we just look at a – we do a sort of mapping exercise where we look at people in their lives they can talk to about things that are important to them um, – in different domains, so I guess in the community and then at school and in their families. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM and our guest this morning is Dr. Karen Block, who's Associate Director at the Jack Brockoff Child Health and Wellbeing Program. Um, and I think it's time for a music track, so we're going to listen to one of the songs that was chosen by Karen. Uh, by the way, uh, before I forgot to back announce the other track, so that was um, an artist called Asta, and the song was called Dynamite. And now we're going to listen to some Johnny Mitchell. Put up a parking lot. <laughs> and that was Big Yellow Taxi by Johnny Mitchell. And we need to ask our guest uh, why she decided to choose this song. Oh, um, nothing profound. It's just a song I like. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to, yeah, it takes me, takes me back. Yeah. yeah. Great. 
Okay, let's continue. Carol. So the program, or your, this current research program, has been running about a year. What is, what's your time span overall? So we've got funding for the research until middle of next year. Yep. Um, Moreland City Council has come on to help um, partly fun, to fund one of the positions as well, which is fantastic. We're also working with Hume City Council and we're hoping that they'll, um, they'll do that as well. But it is a bit of a... We, we'd like to keep it going for at least another couple of years. And then I guess we're really sort of starting to turn our attention to sustainability. Um, I actually think that it is a sust potentially sustainable model. I mean, if you, you're talking about um, paying one community worker on a sort of half-time basis to help to engage 180 kids, I think that's pretty good value for money and I think it's something that actually local government could could take up um, on a sustainable basis. So that's, I guess, where, where we want to head. Mm. Um, I also strongly believe that, you know, state government should be stepping in and... and and providing more money for this type of engagement work as well. Karen, you, also, you mentioned costs as being one of the big barriers for mm. inclusion in sports. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how much, for example, to be part of a club? Wow. Well, it varies a lot mm -hmm. for different sports. Um, soccer seems to be the most expensive and it's often five, six, seven hundred dollars to pay for a child to play soccer for a season, which, wow. and given that a lot of these families have, you know, mm. more than one kid, often quite a few kids, um, that's, that can be really prohibitive. Uh, we have had some soccer clubs offering us um, discounts for some of our families. And, and the way we try and work is that families that can afford to, to pay, so a lot of our immigrant families that we're working with um, can afford to pay the fees um some some can't and then for our refugee background families we're trying to find ways to help to help help them pay so clubs will often offer some free positions or almost free um positions for families that really need that help um but again this is where i think actually governments have a role i think you know i think we know what the benefits are um and i guess we're trying to provide more evidence for, for what these benefits are so actually it's a pretty cheap way <laughs> For, for governments to, to um, kind of prevent future social issues if you're getting all kids, in, you know, kids engaged early and families engaged early in community participation. What would be the cheapest sport to play? Cheap, oh, I don't know. Netball's pretty good. Okay. Um, yeah, netball's not very expensive. Um, basketball's pretty good. Uh, most of them, Auskick's good. That's cheap. Um, for, so for younger kids, it tends to be quite cheap. Yeah. I think we also need to look at it in terms of how much time is invested. And for that reason, I think cricket is not a good idea. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. It's good for socialising, though. You've got hours to sit around and that's, drink, that's talk right. to people. That's right, yeah. yeah. Are Actually, you, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, and Little Athletics has been um, has also been a really nice one. That, again, it's a long time commitment. People spend, tend to spend the whole morning. But the nice thing there is all the kids play, all the kids are involved at the same time. So if you've got kids of different age groups, it's much easier to manage. A lot of these sports demand parent involvement. Mm. Um, sometimes it's easier to get children involved with each other than it is with adults, particularly around language issues. Mm. How much focus are you putting on working with, with the adults? We're, we're trying really hard to engage parents. I think we need to do more. Um, as I said, we're getting some of our, our badminton mums to train as coaches, which is fantastic. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're really encouraging 
we're encouraging the family the families we're working with um, to, to get involved and we're encouraging the clubs to help them to get involved. I think, you know, you can imagine it can be quite daunting to put your hand up to volunteer in an environment where you don't really understand how it all works and, and what goes on. So I think it's really important that clubs um, sort of make an effort to, to include those families, perhaps buddy them up with someone else so that they learn how to run the lines or do the scoring or whatever it is that, that you need need people to do. So I think it's it's an area that we're, we've been doing a bit in, we're keen to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, I imagine, a challenging area because yeah. it's often hard to involve parents even without some of those cultural and language mm. barriers. So it's another yeah. step again to, to help people overcome that with those barriers. Yeah, but I think really important. Um, and because we know too that there's the potential benefits for the parents are great as well. Are any of your surveys involving existing club members? Are you finding out the impact on, on existing clubs? We haven't clubs? done that yet. We'll probably do some qualitative research, so do some interviews and um, and focus groups with existing club members, yeah, because that's, that's really important to, to get their perspectives as well. Yep. And I was just going to ask you about managing conflict, you know, sometimes with, <laughs> with parents as well. Sometimes parents can be quite pushy with yeah, their kids. Yeah, yeah. Has that, is that an issue that's coming yeah, up? Yeah, things have come up. Um, you know, we've had a couple of parents like telling the coach how to, telling coaches how to do their jobs. That happens, you know, across all backgrounds. That's <laughs> not not <laughs> limited to our parents in our, uh, oh, that's right. our yeah. families at all. But um, so, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of, tr- of explaining, you know, what, what is and isn't appropriate. Um, and sometimes the coach is wrong, but that's you just have to put up with that. <laughs> that's, that's part of part of life in a sports club. At our tennis club, one thing is the parents cannot be cannot interact at all with the game. You know, like the kids have to work out the scores. Okay. If it's in or out, you cannot say anything. Yeah. You know, even if you see the ball and it's like a meter out, yeah. and the kid says, "Ah, oh, you know, in," <laughs> then you you can't say anything. Just, yeah. Which you know, I, I I understand why they do it, but it's quite interesting. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I guess some of the other things, not so much conflict, but issues. Um, we one of one of the clubs, uh, some of the again the Muslim mums um, went to a medal presentation um, at the end of the at the end of the season, and of course there was alcohol being served, and they weren't really comfortable in that environment. So I guess it's and um, you know I don't, it's a different issue. We're not we're not going to be the ones to remove the nexus between alcohol and sport that's um, that's something that's entrenched and and a lot of clubs rely on it to for money um well but th- that actually becomes a big issue i know mm. i mean cricket clubs uh, yeah it is a know, big issue so i guess we, what we've our approach has been to i guess um just talk to the clubs and, and explain that you know actually people are really uncomfortable they don't want to sit in a bar um, for a medal presentation and thinking and, and just encouraging them to think through how they can perhaps maybe separate the actual medal presentation from where alcohol is being consumed. <laughs> just think through, you know, mm. it's not that hard. Mm. Or, yeah. you, know, you don't have to stop people from drinking. As We're not asking them to do that, but think through how they can make sure it's a comfortable environment for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Your research and the project itself would obviously be a really useful model for areas outside the area that you're working. Have you had much interest from from other municipalities or even elsewhere in Australia for what you're doing? Yeah, not so much yet. Um, hope, hopefully, we have had a few 
Not so much from municipalities. I mean, I guess people have said to us, oh, can you go and do that in Durban? Can you go and do that in Bringbank? And we'd love to, but we don't have the resources at this point. But that is that is ultimately what we would like What we would like to say. This is a model that works. Yes. Um, this is the evidence for, for the benefits. And, you know, I guess provide um, kind of uh, resources so that it can be rolled out in, in other places. Yep. And that's, that's our ultimate aim. Of course. So we're working, yeah. I mean, I, I've... Would like to. I guess I'll mention some of the other people we're working with. Vic Health has come on board to fund the project and also gave us an award last year. We got a um, Vic Health Health Promotion Award for promoting health through sport. Congratulations! Which was very exciting. Mm. Um, we get to a winner on our email signature if we want to. <laughs> Does more money come with the award? No, no. <laughs> no. What's the point? But that's um, and and that was actually that award actually went to um, Mary Health as the prime as the primary partner and to us as well um so that was exciting to see our partners recognized like that um i mentioned moreland city council we've also been working with faulkner primary school um and we do a lot of our recruiting through schools in the local areas um and then all of the sports clubs that we're working with as well so there's a lot of people um who really engaged in engaged in this which is exciting yeah, I was going to ask about schools because that nexus mm. is actually quite important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we'd like to see – and we've been talking a bit in Hume actually about whether there's potential to get um, some of the clubs to run training – some of their training sessions at schools um, as Which a good way to – helps with the transport problems. Yeah, it helps with the transport problems, um, makes it easy for people to take those first steps um, and also helps helps – um, sports clubs that are competing for ground space to access more space as yeah, well. for sure. So Today we're actually starting a um, soccer program at one of the local schools in Hume. Okay. But what's interesting um, and different about this one is that we actually have invited students from three different schools to attend at this school. And, you know, the school is very happy to do that. So basically the idea is that we will get maybe kids from three different schools attending mm-hmm. this program as a way as well to make connections between the different mm. schools. And, you know, one of them is a Catholic school and the other one is public so mm-hmm. anyway that oh that's nice yeah oh I, oh that reminds me actually because i know center for multicultural youth is on board as well they they've been helping us out too which and is great karen have you done any work on i guess the the financial side of thing of things you know quite quite often you have uh, return on investment or something like that and you know i mean i hate those mm. um you know constructs but quite often they are useful for to sell a program and to to make people see the importance of it. Have you done any work on that? Yeah, we haven't. And you're right, an economic evaluation would be really good. Again, it comes down to our resources um, to do that. But I think that that is something that we should try and do as well. Um, I mean, it's it's really, yeah, it's it's obviously difficult. How do you put an economic value on some of the outcomes that you're looking at? But there are, you know, as long as you've got something that you can measure – Mm. Then, you, then health economists in particular are very creative and very good at putting them, <laughs> working out what that's worth. <laughs> All right. The computer is telling me that we, we need to play another sponsorship break. So we'll go to that and then we'll just play another track after that. You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org, northwestfm.org for more information. I've always been an eagle, been a while since I have flown. 
The three hours of the best in real country, western swing, honky tonk rock and alternative country that pushes the boundaries of rock, jazz and the blues. Join me every Sunday from 12 noon till 3pm for That's Country, featuring a wide mix of music, live country music gig guide, album of the week, interviews, profiles and country music birthdays. All this and more on That's Country, 12 noon till 3pm every Sunday right here on Northwest FM. That's country. You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org, northwestfm.org for more information. Did you know around half a million Australians will be affected by epilepsy in their lifetime? Sadly, many people won't disclose they have epilepsy for fear of misunderstanding and stigma. Help Epilepsy Action Australia bring epilepsy out of the shadows. Get on board with Purple Day on March 26, an international grassroots effort to raise epilepsy awareness worldwide. For Purple Day information, visit epilepsy.org.au or phone 1300 37 4537. And the show is Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Uh, the track you just heard was You've Got a Friend by Carol King. Chosen by our guest this morning, Dr. Karen Block. Again, uh, any reasons or just like the song? Uh, again, I like the song, but that one does kind of speak to what we're talking about as well. I, because, we're, yeah, it's about social connections, friends. Very good choice. Mm. I only thought about that afterwards. <laughs> 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 but then maybe there's something subliminal, you know, <laughs> making me pick these songs as well. Karen, you had another partner organisation oh, you wanted to mention. I wanted to mention that we've also, um, our second community support coordinator is actually um, based at Arabic Welfare and they've been a great partner Um They've been involved in our, our kind of advisory group from the beginning, but um, now much more actively involved as well um, in recruiting families, particularly in Hume. Great. Well, well, we might as well say hello to Amal from Arabic Welfare and also Michael, who's on the committee, Michael Mawal. Yep. Hey, Amal. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael. I haven't met Michael. <laughs> so I guess the underlying theme of all this, Karen, is social inclusion. Absolutely. Sports the tool. But there are a lot of people who are really not interested in sport. So does your research encompass other areas of social inclusion? Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously sport's the one we're using. But as you say, it's just a tool um, and, you know, arts, uh, all sorts of things can be tools for social inclusion. Um, so, yeah, previously we did some work um, evaluating the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Program, which many people would know about. It's in, in a lot of primary schools now. And um, one of the things that I really um, struck me about that program and that people talked about a lot was um, it, it was primarily about um, getting kids to, to grow and cook and eat fabulous fresh food. Um, but it also involves the whole community around the school. They bring in community volunteers um, who help out in the kitchen and the garden. Um, and, and it really, another thing that sort of came out was how it really increased engagement of children at school, particularly kids who might be struggling academically. It gave them something that they could really excel at. Um, so it's, in some ways, it, you know, it was having a similar kind of function to the way sport is in our Count Me In project. 
Um, and some of the schools who were involved in our early evaluation uh, were in quite ethnically diverse areas. Um, and there was one school in particular where there were a lot of, um, this was about eight years ago now, but a lot of Vietnamese families. And the school was delighted um, by the way the, the having the program had helped to give give the Vietnamese families, um, who many of whom didn't speak English, uh, a way to really engage at the school. They could come and volunteer in the garden and the kitchen where they wouldn't perhaps feel um, comfortable volunteering in a reading program in the classroom, for example. Um, so it was really great in that sense. And, and it would add to the diversity of the plants that you would grow to get oh, people to come yeah. and introduce things that other people wouldn't normally Absolutely. grow. Yeah, and, and, or eat. And, and eat and recipes and, you know, so they could come in in a real strengths-based way where they're actually adding value to the school rather than it feeling like the school's trying to um, help them or, or, you know, one thing you hear sometimes is that parents only get called up to any, only going to the school when their kid's in trouble, you know. So it's actually Good going point. in for a really positive interaction, which is really nice. Um, and then it, conversely in some, some very kind of um, monocultural areas, particularly regional areas, the program – the schools were using the program to introduce kids to um, cooking, you know, foods from all over the world and and sort of integrating it into the curriculum to say, well, okay, this, you know, we're going to learn about Spain, say, or um, we're going to learn about China and they would cook foods from that region and use it as a way to teach the kids about um, diversity too. Yes, Karen, <laughs> just try to focus on the same place because your levels are going up. On oh, that. sorry. Yeah, I keep talking to Carol over there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know with an animated speech. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it's a pity that people we can't capture all the gesticulation because mm. it's really amazing. Uh, yeah, I do talk with my hands a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what's your What's your family background? Oh, yeah, pretty diverse actually. Um, my mother's English. My dad's family were Jewish, um, uh-huh. and they were from oh France, I guess, was where they migrated to Australia from uh, quite a long time ago. Um, and then there's there's a kind of a pole in there somewhere, and a few other. There's always a pole somewhere. <laughs> there's a few other people as well. Great. Yeah, but I was born here. I didn't. Yeah. So you were saying before that you've gone back to some of that evaluation of the Stephanie Alexander program. There's been further development. Yeah, we're working again with the Stephanie Alexander um, Kitchen Garden Foundation, and to do another. Um, 10-year evaluation. So we're going back, we're actually surveying um, young people who did the program when they were in primary school um, and who are now young adults, so young adults between the ages of 18 and 23. We haven't put the survey out there yet, but it'll be April, we'll be rolling it out. Um, And to see whether it's had any sort of lasting impacts on the way, um, on any aspect of their lives really, I guess particularly on what they cook and eat, but um, whether any of those social impacts have continued as well or if they feel like it had a had made a difference for them. Mm. I have to say, uh, I am a big fan of Stephanie Alexander. Her book, what is it, the Cook's Companion? Cook's Companion, yeah. Um, that that basically was the one that taught us how to cook a lot of stuff. And yeah. Quite quite often, I have used it as a wedding gift for some friends who are getting married and stuff like that. In fact, I sent it to Spain one. Oh really? Once, and and the lady was, uh, you know, uh, so so appreciative as well. Yeah. It's just a, it's the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is the Bible. Yeah, and that, and seriously, the program is amazing. That and it's been uh, talking to the foundation recently. I said most of the schools who were doing it eight years ago are still doing it, so they really right. really value it. And and new schools are joining. Oh, all the, all the time. time. Yeah, mm, yeah, it's really good. Because mm. for some kids, it's the first time they, <clears throat> excuse me, have eaten 
fresh food out of a garden. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which is really important. Yeah. All right. We might just play another music track and then we'll come back for just uh, one last section. So this is some James Taylor. All right, and that was James Taylor, Fire and Rain. Um, Karen? Oh, yeah, I don't have a profound reason for picking that one. I just like it. Though I've made Carol sad. (laughs) It is a very sad song. Um, Just a very quick announcement. Uh, 17th of March, there's the Make a Day Festival in Glenroy. Um, Make your own fashion, art. Go to Facebook to check out more. We'll tell you more next week. Just a quick wrap up with Karen. I just wanted to ask Karen, you haven't always been a social researcher. I just wanted you to tell our listeners a bit about how you ended up where you are. Um, yeah, that's right, Carol. I used to be a vet, um, which is very different from what I do now. Um, yeah, I was always going to be a horse vet and I was for a couple of years. I worked in Kentucky in the United States um, looking after racehorses and then moved into small animal practice um, in Melbourne. And I think... Um, yeah, I worked as a vet for 20 years before I switched to social health research. And I guess looking looking back, I think um, a couple of things sort of are coherent about that move. I When I first worked in Kentucky, the thing that really I, I think affected me the most was how what an unequal place it was. Um, so I was really struck by and, and horrified by the level of inequality that I, that I saw there. Um, and it wasn't something that I'd been as conscious of growing up. Um, in Melbourne and and then at, I guess I continued as I worked as a vet I was always really interested in how, how do you um, how do you help the families with the pets um, you know and particularly people who are who are struggling in some way I worked at the Lord Smith Animal Hospital for quite a long time which is a charity run hospital um, for people who can't afford private veterinary um, services and yeah, so I guess those are things that always interested me. And then I decided I wanted to do something different, work more with people and went in, did a master's in public health um, and then was lucky enough to get a job working at Melbourne University uh, in research. And my, the first job I worked on was the Stephanie Alexander kitchen garden evaluation, which I really loved. And so you've gone from animals to plants to people. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's quite a transition. Well, Karen, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning and we really thank you for taking the time because I know you you, you sound like you're incredibly busy. So. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to, um, yeah, I love talking about my project, so it's been <laughs> great. Thanks. Now, thank you. We'll catch up more with you when your results start to come mm. in. Yeah. Carol, um, we don't have a lot of time, but unfortunately, uh, village idiot of the week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give it to... Barnaby again. Uh, there's no choice. <laughs> it's got to be Barnaby. Um, I just uh, I'm completely lost for words in terms of the reasons why you would just say, you know, just p- cast some doubts o- over the paternity of your of your child. I mean, why would you do that to your partner and child? I mean, wh- what's is the, can anyone explain that? Maybe what he's trying to say is the relationship was never consummated and can I have my job back, please? <laughs> anyway, so that's our, our village idiot of the week. And we're going to leave you with some Willow Smith. So Willow is uh, 
Will Smith's daughter. And someone sent me this link yesterday, and I thought she was pretty cool. Yada Pinkett's daughter, actually. Yes. I don't even know wh- who that lady is. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Okay. Um, see you all next week. Thank you very Have much. Have a good week. Bye. A bit of a slow stuff.